Throughout the year, I'm sure you've noticed that on our Lord's Supper table, we use different colored vestments to help us mark and reflect on the different seasons of the Christian calendar. Green, which was up last Sunday, represents life and growth. It's the standard color that's on there, reminding us that we should be growing and following Jesus, who is the source of abundant and eternal life. Red, which we only use a couple times a year, reminds us of Jesus' blood. You'll see that on Palm Sunday. Or it represents the tongues of fire that rested on the disciples' heads on Pentecost. White, the symbol of purity and holiness, will mark our table at Christmas, on Easter, and when we observe the Lord's Supper. And purple, the color of royalty, is used in both Advent and Lent because they are seasons of preparation and anticipation, reminding us that it is the kingly reign of Jesus that we await and prepare for. The Advent wreath uh, is an important part of our decorations at Christmas. The circle, much like the wedding ring, has been a symbol of endless love and faithfulness. And in a similar way, the unbroken circle of the Advent wreath reminds us of Christ's endless love and faithfulness to His people. It also points us to our annual remembrance of His life through the liturgical cycle. Every year we begin with Advent with us coming, we go to Christmas, we celebrate His arrival. We have Lent, where we prepare for Holy Week, His crucifixion on Good Friday, resurrection on Easter Sunday, and then Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit. In Advent, we come back around and begin this journey once more in great anticipation for the birthday of God's Son. And so on each of the four Sundays during Advent, one of the four Advent candles will be lit, just as we will soon light a candle in a moment. The light shines into the darkness, pointing us to Him who is light for our darkness. The Old Testament reading is Isaiah 11, 1 through 3, and verse 10. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his place of rest will be glorious. The New Testament reading this morning is from Romans 15, verses 12 and 13. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations. The Gentiles will hope in him. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. The planting of a seed is an act of faith and hope. Those who farm or garden know that the expectation of the coming harvest carries a twinge of fear that the rains won't come or pests and disease will ruin their hard work. Sin has come into our world like a pestilence, threatening God's good creation. But just as a shoot may sprout from a seemingly dead stump, so Jesus has come into our sin-sick world. He comes to bring new life. He comes to bring healing and hope. We come today in celebration of his birth, an expectation for his return. Advent reminds us that God is always at work for our good and his glory. He will not abandon us, 
but will come through at the right moment fulfilling his promises. Have hope this Advent season that you are loved and valued by the one who came down and arrived at just the right time for us all. Will you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, meet us in our waiting at the place of our deep longing. May we know your presence is near us. God of hope, fill us with all joy and peace as we trust in you so that we may overflow with the hope of the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Good morning. The sanctuary greenery in ancient Greece and Rome, laurel and bay symbolized victory and triumph. In other pagan cultures, you and Cyprus pointed to eternal life. But as missionaries spread the gospel, they saw a deeper, richer meaning for the church in these evergreen plants and so adopted them into Christian worship. For example, mistletoe symbolizes peace, and in the prickly leaves and red berries of holly, Christians are reminded of Jesus' crown of thorns and the sacrifice he made for us on Calvary. In our celebration of the Christmas season, we remember the rest of Jesus' story, for it was to die that this holy infant came to earth, as the Apostle Paul tells us in Galatians 4, 4 through 5. When the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. The poinsettia. The bright blood-red poinsettia, which has become the most popular of all Christmas flowers, came into our Christmas tradition after its discovery in 1828 by Dr. Joel R. Poinsett, the United States ambassador to Mexico. Its tropical red leaves are not blossoms. The flowers are the small yellow clusters at the center. The plant's star-shaped formation of red leaves reminds us of the star which came to shine at Bethlehem. It also reminds us of the blood that Jesus came to shed for us, as prophesied in Isaiah 53, 4-5. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our, our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. The Christmas tree. In Isaiah we read, The glory of Lebanon shall come unto you, the fir, the pine, boxed together, to beautify the place of my sanctuary. In keeping with that spirit, it is believed that the German reformer, Martin Luther, first used the pine and cedar at Christmas. He wandered out one Christmas Eve and became entranced with the wonder and beauty of the starry sky. Looking up, he thought of the one who came down from heaven to bring salvation to all people. On his return home, he set up a tree for his children and decorated it with candles to represent the glorious heavens from which the Lord Jesus had come. Legend tells about another German who had a hand in bringing us the Christmas tree, St. Winifred missionary in Scandinavia in the 8th century. The people led by pagan druid priests gathered in the forest under a great oak tree to offer human sacrifice. St. Winifred, shocked by such brutality, courageously cut down the oak. As it fell, a young fir tree appeared where it had stood. St. Winifred proclaimed the fir tree holy, saying it is a symbol of endless life because its leaves are green. Take up the fir tree, he directed, and carry it to the chieftain's hall. You shall go no more into the forest to keep your feast with secret rites of shame. You shall keep them at home with laughter and songs of rites and love. Gathered round the fir tree to rejoice in the holy night when Christ was born. The lighting of the tree lights. The white lights on our tree are a reminder of a completely pure and entirely unselfish love of God who gave his son for our salvation. The lights remind us of the grace of God and his boundless love because God was revealed to us in Jesus Christ 
who is the light and life of men. Kids, it's time to come forward. Ben has a job for everybody. Very important job for everybody. So let's have all the kids come on up for children's yeah, Come on down. Over on this side. Over on this side. Yeah, throwing you off. I'm over here. Come over here by our beautiful tree over here. I know. <laughs> Good to see you all. And all the colors, you all were ready for the beginning of Advent. It's the first day of Advent. And you all have seen all the beautiful things that have been brought in and as we have decorated. And a big part of this is right now over here by this tree. I want you to look at it and look at everything that's hanging on it right now. There's some spaces here at the bottom that you all are going to help me fill in here in just a minute. But there's some symbols, some ornaments on there that are kind of special here. Does anybody know what they're called? Does anybody remember? For maybe from, does anybody know? Say it, just say a few. Chrismon. Chrismon. That's right. It sounds like I'm about to say Christmas or Christ, but it's the word Chrismon. And it's actually two words put together. The first word is Christ, of course, where we remember Christ at Christmas. And the other word is monogram. Okay? Your mommies love monograms. Okay? And we have monogrammed your names and stuff. And a monogram is a symbol that represents something or someone. And these monograms represent Jesus. Okay, So it's Christ and a monogram. And they're really special. They've been used for, uh, by Christians for a long, long time. Um, and here at our church, we put them on the tree. You might also decorate and have some at your own house. And you probably have seen a few of these before. So I'm going to get up and you, I'm going to have a few people help me so everybody else can see these. Um, I don't, there's all sorts of different ones. I'm going to show you a few of them and what they mean. This first one, I'm going to show them to you all and then I'm going to have one of you hold it up. Everybody else can see it. This one is special. This is part of an alphabet. But does that look like our alphabet? English alphabet, it's not. It's not. It's part of the Greek alphabet. It's actually the first letter and the last of the Greek alphabet. Does anybody know what that is, Abby? <laughs> alpha and Omega, that's right. Alpha. It looks like, yeah, preacher's kid. Uh, alpha and Omega. The, the A kind of, you know, Alpha kind of looks like ours. But, yeah, the Omega, not so much. Can somebody hold this up? Okay. Here. Just hold it up right over there and show everybody. Just stay standing. You don't have to hold it up, up the whole time. You can just kind of hold it. There you go. Um, Alpha and Omega, because Jesus said, I'm the beginning, the end, and uh, God is all, always has been, always will be, um, and there is no end to him. Let's go to the next one. Oh, this one. I think this one. You all can kind of see what this is. It's a fish. That's right. It's a fish. This actually is one of the oldest Christian symbols that there is. Um, they have found this way back that Christians use this kind of as a secret symbol uh, when there was a lot of persecution. There's a lot of people that were trying to catch Christians and stuff, and they would use this as a secret symbol to let other people know that they're following Jesus. Um, and the, the ancient word, well, the, the Greek word is ichthus. And actually, uh, it's the word for fish, and it's a, um, when you use every letter for that, it means Jesus, Christ, God's Son, and it also means salvation, all of those things. So it has a hidden symbol. Sometimes you'll see it like a fish. Sometimes you'll see more of those Greek letters that actually look like a fish when they're put together. Can somebody, John Asher, can you go hold that over there? And the, and the bumpers. Oh, yeah, yeah, they put them on the back of their chariots back then, too. Um, <laughs> here's the next one. What does that look like? 
Huh? The manger. That's right. Manger. You know, when we think of Jesus, that he is the king of all kings, when you think of the king of all kings coming, if I was just to tell you to draw just where the king would stay, you would probably think of a palace. You would probably think of something made out of gold, something with a red carpet rolled out. And that's not how Jesus came. It was actually one of the lowliest places, a manger. Okay, And when the angels came to the shepherds, they said, you will find Jesus how? He will be what? In a manger. That's right. That's how the shepherds, that was a sign that they would find him. Because you don't typically find babies in a manger. That was like an animal. That's where animals ate out of. And that's where he was from. Or that's where they kept him. All right. Right here. Here we go. All right. Don't worry. We'll get some ladies up there. Here's the next one. Here's the next one. Now, this is another one of those symbols that kind of looks like two things stuck together. What do we... A a cross and a circle. That's right. And the cross, and it goes this way, the cross is over the circle. The cross represents what? You all know this. Huh? It represents Jesus, right? They died on the cross for us. He saved us. The circle, does anybody have an idea of what that might represent? Does anybody know? Huh? Somebody say sun, clothes, a little bit different. Represents our, it represents our world. It reminds us that Jesus has conquered the world. He's actually conquered sin and death. All the things uh, that are in the world that kind of make it broken sometimes. Jesus repairs all that. All right, let's have a lady. Here we go. Can you carry that over there? Oh, this last one. It's a beautiful one. Anybody know? Butterfly. Okay. You all have probably known from from science class, from your teacher. Maybe you've even done this in the classroom where you had a caterpillar. Somebody ever had this in the classroom? You had a caterpillar. And then what happened to the caterpillar? It turned into a butterfly. Okay. Uh, If everything goes well, it turns into a butterfly. And uh, it makes a cocoon. And when it's in that cocoon, does it seem like it's alive in there? No. it, It stays like that for a while. And then one day you come back, and it's opened up, and there's a butterfly. So this is the image that kind of represents what Jesus did, although Jesus is a lot greater. Jesus died and was dead in a tomb. The caterpillar actually doesn't die. It just goes into a cocoon. But it reminds us that because it's a transformation, and Jesus will live forever. Okay? All right, let's have Here we go. We can hold those up. So look at these beautiful chrismons. Here's your picture time, parents. There we go. All right, we got it. All right, now the next part. You all can bring those back over here. Hand, hand them to Pastor David right here. He'll help get those. And I'm going to walk over here. I'm going to tiptoe, tiptoe. Try not to step on hands. Here we go. All right, the, the rest of this tree, you see there's a lot of empty spaces. A lot of those chrismons are way up high. I need you, you guys' help to put these all the way around the tree, not just right here. We need spots around the tree. But we have Christmas, so if everybody can, if you can just stand up, just grab one right now and go put it on the tree. Just grab one. It doesn't matter which one. All right. We're going to have a prayer. Everybody sit down when you're done, so I know you're done. And I'm over, over here. Yeah, you can look at the tree, though. It's beautiful. Good job. Um, let's have a prayer. And for the rest of the service, we are staying in here. There's no children's church today because we have a lot of fun songs that you all know, Christmas carols, and other things that we're going to do to decorate the, uh, for the rest of the service. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you for these Christmas and, and Lord, for what they mean to our faith, what they mean to Jesus and what he is in our lives. Lord, we thank you for the salvation he provides and we remember that he came in a lowly manger. Um, God, and he will come again as we anticipate um, his second coming. Thank you for these children and uh, Lord, just bless these families during this time of Advent as we take time to reflect and to anticipate Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. St. Francis of Assisi is credited with creating the first ever nativity scene. Francis was concerned that the true meaning of Christmas was becoming lost as most people were more focused on materialistic gift giving than they were on the true message of Christmas. Of course, St. Francis of Assisi lived in the 2000s, right? I mean, it's, <laughs> that sounds like today. It's, it's hard to believe. We think that it's, it's a modern thing that we get so consumed with materialism. But even in, in the 1200s, this was a problem. So he was determined to remind people what Christmas was really about, and he created the world's first known nativity scene to help retell the story of Jesus' birth. It was created in a, key, in a cave near Grisio, Italy in 1223 and involved real people and animals, kind of like what we use here for our draft nativity. So it was the first nativity was a living nativity. Today, nearly 800 years later, we still hear Christian leaders echoing St. Francis's words. The true message of Christmas is becoming lost, buried beneath layers of secular traditions. Thankfully, the tradition St. Francis began continues to remind us that Jesus is what Christmas is really about. Nativity sets, as we know them today, found their roots in the 1300s. They started as display pieces for Italian churches. They were often made out of terracotta, and these early nativity sets were displayed not just at Christmas, but year-round. In the mid-1500s, nativity sets began to appear in wealthier people's homes. And over the years, the nativity spread to practically all Christian countries, each region adding its own unique style and influence. The home nativity was picked up more than anybody by the Germans, where Catholic and Protestant families alike displayed them in their homes. It's still a tradition in Germany to display all parts of the nativity set except baby Jesus, who is only displayed after Christmas Eve. We display our nativity set to further remind us that He is God. Jesus gave up those divine privileges. He entered into human history in the humble position of a slave. And as a human being... He humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. And we also remember that Jesus Christ is coming again. And at his name, every knee will bow and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. Please take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 11. And I know it's 1137, so don't panic. I'm not preaching a full sermon this morning. This whole service is a sermon today. Uh, if you've already looked at this year's Advent book, you'll see that our theme for this year is a season of expectation. And expectation is a great word for Advent. It is a season of expectation. Think about it. As presents begin to pile up underneath that tree, right? The expectation of those children for, for that Christmas morning when they can tear into those packages tied up with string, it just grows throughout the month, doesn't it? I don't think there's, there are a few moments that quite capture expectation as children on Christmas Eve, looking forward to those presents the next day. But of course, we know that Advent and Christmas are about so much more than presents or parties or tinsel or holly. And there are far greater things to wait in expectation for 
hearts for. Advent is a season of expectation for the things that the human heart longs for the most. Hope, peace, joy, and love. We wait in eager expectation for the one who alone can fulfill those desires. The anointed one, the Messiah, the son of David, the prince of peace, Emmanuel, the word made flesh, Jesus. And so throughout this month, we're going to focus on each of these four essential elements of faith, beginning today with hope. And I think it's appropriate we start with hope because hope is the most closely of those four related to Advent. The word Advent means arrival, the, the, the impending approach, the coming of someone that's been longed for. Advent by its very nature is about hope. It's about waiting in expectation for someone important to come. We symbolically wait in hopeful expectation for the birth of Christ. And I say it's symbolic because as we celebrate Advent and we look forward to the birth of Jesus, of course that's an exercise for us. Of course that's something we do by way of of reminding ourselves of who Jesus is, of, of why He came, why God came in human flesh, why the Creator became a part of His creation. So we symbolically look forward to the coming of Christ. But Advent is also a season in which we remind ourselves that we are awaiting the coming of Christ. The second coming of Christ. Jesus will return. And so we need to be preparing ourselves. We need to be examining our hearts and our lives and seeking to live in holiness and making disciples of our neighbors and the nations until He returns. But before we get there, before we focus on the end of the story, this morning, I want us to look back at the beginning. You see, the Christmas story doesn't begin in Bethlehem. It doesn't start with a manger. It begins in a garden with a tree, a serpent, and a rebellious couple. I want to read for you, and these will be up on the screen, Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. This is after Adam and Eve have sinned. And God has caught them, you know, with their hands in the proverbial cookie jar. And it says, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, because you have tempted and lied and brought sin to humanity, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Right here, the seeds of hope are planted. Here begins all of creation's eager expectation for God to come and rescue his wayward children and to set all things in the world right and new again. This is the very first messianic promise. This is hope. But it will come at a price. For the woman, it means that she and, and, and all women will give birth, will bring new life to the world through pain, through labor. But there's also a price for her seed, for the promised rescuer who will crush that lying serpent's head because his victory will come through seeming defeat, a wound. A direct strike from the evil one himself. But that strike won't end in defeat. 
And by it, the rescuer will make all things new. He will set everything right. Genesis later on revisits this promise in chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, which says, The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country and your people and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. God had not forgotten His promise. He will someday bless all families on earth. The promised rescuer will come, and He will come through Abram's seed. There is hope for humanity, and there's hope for Abraham and Sarah. See, God here is making some big audacious promises. Now this, when God said this to Abram, it must have blown his mind. God would bless all families on the earth through him. God would make Abram the father of a great nation. But how? Here's the problem. Abram and Sarah had always wanted to have children. They had tried and tried and tried and had never been able to conceive. I mean, that dream for them, it took flight long ago. They had given up all hope of ever expecting to have children. I mean, they were senior citizens. They were in great-grandparent territory. Not parent territory. How could such elderly people become parents? As far as they were concerned, it was impossible. But for God, it was super easy. Barely an inconvenience. And so after much prayer, some doubt, lots of faith, some tears, and even some laughter, Isaac was was born. Hope was fulfilled. Expectations were realized. God came through... Just as he said. Now let's pick up this story in Hebrews chapter 11. The author of Hebrews gives us a great summary of what would otherwise take us several chapters in Genesis to get through. So I want us to begin in Hebrews 11. And I want us to look at verses 8 through 12. And as we read through these, I want you to look and listen for the the words about expectation. Words of hope. Beginning in verse 8. By faith Abraham, when called to a place... He would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed, and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise, for he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And what is hope if it's not following a God you can't see to a land you don't know? What is expectation if it's not the longing to arrive and inherit that promised land? And even as Abraham lived in that land, he was still hopeful and expectant for something even greater. He wasn't satisfied with that land. His heart longed for a city whose builder and architect was God. He was looking forward to an even greater heavenly inheritance. Hope that Abraham and Sarah's lifelong desire for a child could become a reality. And this is some serious hoping. I mean, I love what the author says here, that Abraham was as good as dead. (laughs) That would make you feel good, wouldn't it, if somebody told you that? It was some serious hope. and some serious expectation for Isaac's birth, 
for God to fulfill His promise of making Abraham's descendants into a mighty nation through whom God would bless the world. Let's pick that up in verse 13. All these people who were still living by faith when they died, they did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. So here the author is kind of stepping back from Abraham specifically, and he's talking about all the heroes of the faith here in this chapter 11 of, of Hebrews. And he's saying that in one way or another, they all lived in expectation, in hope for something they would never fully see in this life. Their greatest hopes and dreams laid far beyond what this world could offer. Their treasures were kept up in heaven. Their eyes were looking upward and onward and forward to that heavenly prize that we find through Christ Jesus. And then in verse 17 through 19, By faith Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He would receive the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead, and figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. And here Abraham's faith was tested. And the author of Hebrews right here lets us in on a secret. The secret of how Abraham could maintain his faith in God, even as God was asking him to sacrifice his one and only son, Isaac, the son of the promise, the son that they had longed and hoped for and expected, the son that was the way in which God would make Abraham's family a mighty nation through whom all nations would be blessed. It it made no sense what God was asking Abraham to do. So how did Abraham have such faith? It tells us right here it's because he had such hope. Now, Hebrews 11.1 tells us that faith is the assurance of what we hope for. But in Hebrews 6.19, it says that hope is a firm and secure anchor for our soul. You see, it was hope that God would still somehow keep His promise. It was hope that God... If he, if he had to, could even restore Isaac back to him from death itself. That hope is what strengthened Abraham's faith and kept him going. Hope can keep us going too. What are you longing for? What are you eagerly expecting from God today? What tests is your faith facing? What are the insurmountable odds that seem stacked against you that for God is super easy and barely an inconvenience. Let hope be the firm and secure anchor of your soul today. Like Abraham and Sarah, I implore you to place your hope in the one who spoke the universe into existence, the one who holds space and time in the palm of his hands. He knows you by name. He knows every hair on your head. He knows every thought before you think it. He knows every word before you speak it. And He loves you with an infinite, never-stopping, 
never giving up, always and forever, love. Jesus came to rescue you from sin, from yourself, from death, from judgment. He crushed the serpent's head. And He can crush whatever it is that threatens to crush you. He can and will bear that weight for you. And by His wounds, you can be healed. Do you know Him? Do you know the Jesus who laid in the manger? The Jesus who walked on water? The Jesus who hung on the cross? The Jesus who arose from the dead? And the Jesus who is coming back again? Do you know Him? I'm here to tell you this morning that hope in Him will never disappoint. He will always come through. He will do as He has promised. Will you put your hope in Him? Will you put your faith and trust in Him today? If you don't know this Jesus, there's nothing better you can do on this first Sunday of Advent than for you to come. You see, Jesus is also hopeful. Jesus is also waiting in eager expectation for you. For you to come this morning and to put your trust in Him for salvation, for the forgiveness of your sins and a fresh start. He's eagerly expecting His people, the body of Christ, to turn from the distractions of this world and to have a laser focus at fulfilling the Great Commission of reaching our neighbors and the nations for Him. Church, He's waiting for us to get up and to go and to be busy about our Father's work. Whatever God has spoken to your heart through this service today, would you come? Would you come to put your faith and hope in Jesus? Would you come to unite with this church family? Would you come to just lay your burdens down and to pick up the hope of all creation that can help you keep going? Would you stand with me and pray? Father, we love you and thank you for this beautiful service, for all these decorations, for the songs. Lord, they all point us to you, the source of our hope, the object of our hope, the one who comes to fulfill our hopes in our wildest imaginations. I pray, Father, if there's anyone here today that needs to respond, that your Spirit has prompted their heart, I pray they would come in faithful obedience and hopeful trust. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's all respond.